This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets, where Chris, every Thursday this summer, this is one of our favorite things, Burgers in the Breezeway. This happens Thursdays at Lake Oswego. Uh, if you want the most delicious burger during your lunch break or maybe for dinner, think Zupan's. They've got gourmet burgers with great toppings and French fries. So here's what you need to th- think about. 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. for lunch or 4 to 7 p.m. for dinner. Burgers in the Breezeway at the Lake Oswego Zoo Pans Markets. And they change them up every week. So they have a different special burger every week. You can check that out. Yeah. And of course, with all those toppings, you can customize your burger. And they're great. That's the other part of it. They're great. I believe they use their um, short rib mix uh, of burgers. So uh, it's delicious. If they don't, it's still delicious. And then you can go inside the store and get your short rib burger to take home and prepare yourself too. And those are second to none. Oh. So I suggest that. Easily the juiciest burger you're going to grill up on your own. Exactly. So summertime is burger time. And for me, coming from the East Coast, that also means lobster rolls. And I don't know if anybody knew because we haven't talked about it very much. I've certainly taken advantage of it, but every summer in all three Zupan stores, they have lobster rolls. So uh, not only can you just get a single roll, pick it up, take out for $18, delicious lobster. Uh, You can also get a lobster roll kit for uh, like a Friday night for your family. Uh, It serves four with potato salad and chips. So those are available uh, at Burnside and McAdam and also their Lake Oswego, they're beautiful, and also their beautiful Lake Oswego location. And of course, if you can't make it down to the store, you can check everything out. Weircourt. Zupans.com. Here it is, time once again, it's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm Court Johnson from Portland Radio, kink.fm. Yeah, well, you're just just presume you're all over the place on radio, but you're also all over the place on podcasts. You're still doing your holy matrimony, uh, right? Uh, in theory, yes, Chris. We are still doing that. It's it's still live. We have not done an episode in a couple of months. Uh, we we talked about this on the podcast, and as you're well aware, my wife started her own business um, at the beginning of the year, and it's been going really well, so well to the point where we had to kind of put some other projects to the side on the back burner. So. Does that mean that my business isn't going that well because I no. have time to do this podcast? No, you're you're just more experienced uh, at at the uh, the you know uh, home business type type thing. This is brand new for us, and so uh, she, she jumped in, and it's been again, it's been a world whirlwind, but it's been great. Yes, Court. A couple of weeks ago, when we all got together at Ringside, which was just fantastic in so many ways. It was really great to hear uh, Randy's doing so well at her business. I'm sure that made the everything great, uh, especially getting through the pandemic to uh, have to be able to start a new business. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad we're still we're still going strong here in the middle of year eight. Um, this podcast, this episode of this podcast, is going to be a little less food related and a little more wine and travel related i happened to catch on facebook uh and hubach who has was doing a trip around west coast national parks with her kids um over the last month and i saw a lot of her posts and she finally got back and i thought it would be really nice to talk about that sort of thing with a uh, a winemaker that had the time to get away and also had the priorities straight in her life enough to want to take her teenage or younger than teenage and teenage kids along for um, what she said would probably be the last time they want to spend so much time with her or that they would spend. I wouldn't say want to. Um, but uh, so it was nice to catch up with Anne. This episode is in two parts. Uh, and the first part is talking about travel all over uh, the West Coast and what that was like in 2021 uh, with kids and some of the sites that she enjoyed the most. Uh, and, you know, Anne is very into 
um, the outdoors and, and, you know, the, what it takes to be a winemaker. That's what attracted to it. And I actually, I, I thought her explanation of the fact that a lot of people don't go into wine right out of school and why that happens was pretty interesting, which you'll hear along the way. And that's in the second part where we talk about her uh, Helioterra wines and her alter ego cider and her trajectory or her journey to open those when you can go try those out um, out at Division Wines on Division um, and uh, and meet her. I'm sure she's going to be there. But um, we had a really interesting discussion about that, um, what it's like to be in Portland and Oregon at this point in time doing what she does. And uh, I think everybody will enjoy this two-parter. I really enjoyed the travel part because uh, it resonated with me because the reason I'm in Oregon is I took my kids at about the same age around the country, longer trips, two months, twice, two in a row, uh, to visit uh, Major League Baseball parks and national parks. And of course, we didn't have a Major League Baseball park in Oregon back then and still don't. Um, but my trip up the coast from San Diego up to Seattle Actually, it might have been Seattle to Victoria. Uh, we landed in Bandon, and I just in 2003, and I just had this almost uh, cosmic epiphany out on the beach, and that's why I'm here, all the way from Connecticut. So, and when Aunt, when I saw Anne was taking the time to do that with her kids, it really uh, was something I was interested in, and I hope our listeners are too. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. And by... Portland Food Adventures. Ready to break out and travel to some of the world's most delicious destinations? Portland Food Adventures has space available on two trips in 2022. To Basque Country in Spain with Chef Javier Canteras of Urdaneta. Also, if you've never experienced Italy with Austria Enzyme, join Chris for the most delicious nine days in Western Sicily imaginable. Info at portlandfoodadventures.com. I appreciate the uh, short notice. No, it seems like you were seeing some of my photos and we're like, hey, I have an idea. Let's do this now. (laughs) Yeah. So I saw some of your photos from um, your recent trip and they reminded me of mine, which land, I think I wrote you that landed me in Oregon 2002 and 2003. I took the entire summers and went around to every major league ballpark with my kids and national parks. And that was when, when, believe it or not, those were before the days where you had to calculate fuel, gas into the equation for the cost of the trip. The gas was only like $1.60 a gallon then. Right, right. But anyway, I saw you with your trip, um, and I thought, well, that's kind of a fun thing to talk about because we've been doing a lot of pandemic stories, and those are, you know, those are running their course. Yeah, uh, well, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm hopeful that we can stop talking about the pandemic, but it's always interesting to say, see how someone negotiated that or navigated that. Yep. But so I'd like to talk about a little navigation with you today, some of it navigating pandemic, some of it navigating Portland. And then, but let's start with your trip. That looks great. Not a lot of people just take off and take, how long were you gone? We were gone for four weeks. So a, a, literally 28 days start to finish. And no, I, I, not a lot of people do take a trip like that. And I had, I mean, I had daydreamed about it. And I guess it was maybe something that came out of the pandemic in a number of different ways. One, um, being a single business owner that basically had let go of all of my staff in the beginning of the pandemic. And it wasn't until the spring that I was starting to hire people back that I was working most, most days, six days, most weeks, six days a week through the whole thing, just to keep the businesses afloat. Cause I have the cidery, I have a cidery and a winery. 
And um, I, you know, successfully hired some people, spent a lot of spring training them in and getting them solid. And then got to a point where I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can pull this off to leave. And also I'm lucky that June, June, July is sort of the slow time. The grapes for me aren't quite at a point where I need to pay a lot of attention to them yet. I've got all the wines in bottle, you know, it's kind of like short of selling wine. There's not a lot of like active things that have to be done during this time. And I mean, from a, from a pandemic standpoint, every other summer I've ever been in business, I normally have, as you know, like there's tons of food events and wine events and different and sales travel and all this other stuff that's expected of you during non-pandemic time. So mm -hmm. now that, and, but because we're not quite out of that yet, and literally Oregon as a state opened up while we were gone. Right. So none of those things were totally expected of me. So I was like, you know what? My kids are 12 and 15. Be maybe because or in spite of the pandemic, we're still spending a lot of time together. No I one's might killed anybody yet. Yeah, right. Like by <laughs> next summer, I might not be a cool mom. And in their eyes, that is, you know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I just have to do it. I literally don't know that I will ever have this chance again of the stars aligned of like the kids being the right age, me not having as many obligations, being the slow season, having a great team of people that I was able to hire and get ready to run the place while I was gone. And I wasn't absent, you know, I still checked in whenever right. I had service, but I'm like, you know what? I, I unapologetically am pulling the trigger on this and I'm just going to do it. And, and frankly, a little of it was even the stimulus money, you know, I'm like, this is like extra money that I wasn't planning on. So I literally used my stimulus came in a visa card and a prepaid debit card. I literally mm -hmm. used that to buy a roof tent for my car and pay for every hotel and camping reservation on the trip. Now, is that, is that kosher to do that with the stimulus money? I mean, it's to stimulate the economy, right? So, I mean, yeah. we we basically, oh, that, that stimulus money, not the PPP. This was uh, no, no, not the PPP. These were the, the twenty. Like, yeah. This is what what got sent to me personally. Yeah, no, 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 no. Okay, now I get it. So, um, I think that's awesome. And now you mentioned your kids' ages. When I did my trips, the kids were. I thought the same thing. They were, I think, nine and twelve the first year, and ten and thirteen the second year. And I thought, I'm never. They're never going to want to sit in a car with me for two months. I don't think they wanted to then, but, sure. uh, but it was, you know, at least I had more control to say, here, you sit there. And, and I will tell you this, I don't know about your kids, but I didn't allow uh, Game Boys in the back of the car. Uh. They, had, they had to sit there and watch telephone poles go by. And, <laughs> um, and I wanted them to get a feel for how big the country was. And it could be boring at times, but to stimulate your own imagination. And uh, that was 28,000 miles. Those kids didn't get to, to do Game Boys. And I still, they didn't, I don't think they hated my guts until yeah. about Cleveland. Then, then I had to give in, but. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, they, they did some gaming, but we did a lot of like audiobooks and also just talking and some singing and, you know, whatever, whatever we, we did to keep the time going. But, you know, like we, we plowed through a lot of podcasts and a lot of books and things like that, that are really fun to kind of have not only something that everyone is engaging in at the same time, but also something else to talk about afterwards or at breakfast and be like, so what, what's going to happen in the book today? You know? <laughs> oh, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you know, you're all participating. A little side note, I've been watching this series on discovery about the machines that made America great. And they had one last night on television and radio huh. and they pointed out back, you know, a hundred years ago or even more that when radio was invented, it was the first time ever in history that that mass numbers of people were listening to the same thing at the same time and that families could take in the same thing at the same time. So you were doing that a yep. hundred years later in a different yep. way, listening to audiobooks and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about your itinerary, how you developed it and how it came out. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say, so because of everything that I was reading leading up to this, I knew that the national parks were going to be a little bonkers. Um, you know, 
I was not the only person that thought, hey, instead of getting on an airplane, let's go on a road trip. So, you know, the, the national parks, for better or worse, are having their busiest summer ever, um, which also meant longer lines or, you know, not you can just like coast in and get a first come first serve reservation. So I unlike what I do a lot of times where I might like have a loose plan of what we want to do. I made sure that I had either a campsite or a hotel booked every single night of the trip. And if we had to change it or cancel it, who cares? But mm -hmm. I was, I, I needed to know that we had a place to rest every single night, a point on the map, a destination. And the other thing from planning the map route out, my goal was an average 250 miles a day. I didn't, I didn't want to spend full days in the car. Right. You know, I wanted to have every single day be able to include some activities with just a few hours of driving. Because mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, as long as you can get out and move your body and see some things, then the driving doesn't feel like so long. And really how it ended up turning out is that we would get up most of the time fairly early and do our activities in the morning. And then let's face it, the Southwest is really bleeping hot <laughs> in the summertime. So most of the time by one or two, it was too hot out that frankly, if you were on a longer hike, you would risk like heat exhaustion or dehydration because it was, we were in over a hundred degrees for two weeks solid. Yeah. So, you know, at that point we're like, okay, let's like do and see as much as we can, maybe see a few things that are just like, you know, visual um, trips through a national park where you can get out at a, at a wayside or a viewpoint, but then let's do all of our driving in the afternoon or evening where we can turn on the AC and utilize the heat of the, the daytime to get our miles under our belt. So that model worked pretty good. And we also did, we wanted to camp because we wanted to be in like in the parks and in nature. And it allows you also to do like the ranger programs and things like that. Um, so more times than not, we camped in the parks. Um, and our, my goal here, and I told this to someone the other day and I think it's spot on, was kind of the speed dating of national parks. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted I wanted to see as much as we possibly could, um, which meant we left a lot on the table. We didn't get to see, you know, we didn't do everything in every park, right? We we saw lots in every park, but the whole concept to me was let's go see as many parks as we can. Let's go see a huge portion of our country that that I've seen some of, but not all of, and the kids have never seen. And then we can know, what do you want to go back to? Where do you want to go and spend more time um, by, by getting like the taste of, of this? My parents actually did that for me when I graduated high school. They took my sister and I to Europe and we did a road trip through five countries in Europe. And that kind of was also like this taste of Europe for me that was like, okay, where do I want to go back? And then proceeded to go back to a couple of places when I was older. And I guess I'm looking at this kind of the same way, you know, we we normally spend our traveling, visiting family or doing some, some more extravagant things. And you kind of forget that we have some pretty amazing things to see and do here in our own country. And there's an inexhaustive list of, of things to see and do. So let's do that. Um, so as far as the route, I basically just started looking at, you know, leaving Oregon and figuring out where all the parks were and what was close enough to, to hop, skip, and jump that we could do as many with as little travel um, <clears throat> and working and seeing a few friends. And there are a few just like, you know, we stayed in Ukiah, California, because I couldn't find any campsite or real great park within two hours of San Francisco or LA that was worth, that, that I could find availability on by the time I was booking this. So I'm like, yeah, all right, that's fine, right? How long in advance did you book it? Because I, I know things are really tight right now. Things are really tight right now. So I, I started, it took a lot of time to even just to book everything. Um, and I started booking it back in April, but I didn't finish booking it until the first week of June. So I, you know, I kept booking a few days at a time and figuring out the route and mapping the mileage and mapping the travel time. And, you know, when we're, when, when we're really like wheels on the road, <clears throat> I realized I made some mistakes. You know, there are things that I made an assumption that you could like drive all the way through Kings Canyon to the other side. <clears throat> 
not realizing that the road doesn't go through and Mount Whitney, the tallest peak in the U.S., <laughs> is a barrier uh -huh. there. You know, things like that. That like I mapped, I, I I did Google Map everything, but it didn't quite. Some of them didn't quite work out, and some of them like it's a three hour, and then you know like construction made it a five and a half hour or something like that. You know, you can't plan for those things, but it it just happens. Um, so yeah, I definitely planned this later than I wanted to, um, in an ideal world, you know, most campsites come available six months in advance and I was booking these more like a month or two in advance, but I also lucked out. Some of them, I got some last minute things that people had canceled, mm -hmm. um, that allowed us better campsites or campsites in the park or, you know, and frankly, also sometimes it was just too hot. That we're like, forget it. Let's stay in a hotel. It's 103 degrees. Let's get a pool instead. I uh, So that's what I did. I didn't do any. I wasn't a camper back then. I'm still not much of one. But what I did, and I don't know if it still worked, but it was pretty awesome. I was like you. I wanted something booked every night so I wasn't left in the lurch. So I booked on, I think, the Choice Hotel site. I booked a hotel. This is 55 nights. Boom, 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 wow. boom. Yeah. And then the night before, I would go on, and I think Priceline has changed. Uh, but I'd go on Priceline and pop in like $80 or 100 bucks, and we were staying in four-star hotels. So yeah. I never kept one of those Choice Hotel reservations, not one of them. I yeah. got a Priceline reservation the night before all the way across the country. So that was wow. cool. But I also say, I think your um, plan to just get a, to do the, the eight minute dating and in, uh, in every park is great because whether you spent one or two days in a place, your kids long term and you are only are probably going to just remember that you were there and a couple of a couple of things that sink in that help you remember it. Yeah. But I think the more you can do it, and you're probably, as you said, setting it up for them later on, they're probably not going to go back with you. Yeah. <laughs> they, I hope they do for your sake, but they're going to be in their 20s in no time. Yep. So they're going to want to do it. Well, so. and I'm like, okay, so maybe it's a long weekend, or maybe it's a spring break, or maybe who knows what. But I was like, you know, there's a very, there's a very small window of time between now and when especially my 15 year old graduates from high school then i'm like you know let's let's set the stage here and we'll see what happens yeah it's great so i can i'm looking through your facebook as you're talking and you know this is like a best of you got yeah. sequoia you got uh zion you got uh, Canyonlands, bryce canyon grand canyon anything that was a surprise did you stop in any state parks because i remember a few when we did it like sylvan Sylvan Lakes, I think it was Sylvan State Park in South Dakota, which was, a butt, which was adjacent to Mount Rushmore. Yep. And that was the most beautiful place ever. And I'd never heard of it before. Are there, were yep. there any sleepers for you? Yeah, we, on the way to Lassen, we did, um, on a tip from some other people, stopped at Bernie Falls State Park in Northern California, mm -hmm. which for those of us that are used to the Columbia River Gorge and how many waterfalls we have, it was maybe a little less spectacular than what I already know from the Northwest, but it was a really big waterfall and it was a really nice little hike. And frankly, I think the best part about it was the camp store right at the top was selling soft serve ice cream. Oh, <laughs> so I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say they were selling your wine. No, they weren't selling my wine, but they were, they said they had soft serve. So let's face it after like, a hot day in the sun and you're about to go do this hike to have a vanilla ice cream cone as you're walking down a trail. Was, oh, yeah. was a pretty glorious little moment. I mean, it was so hot. A lot of times we found ourselves stopping at gas stations, not because we needed gas, but because we all needed something cold because, and we didn't want to crack into our cooler um, mm -hmm. to keep that cold. So, you know, we'd stop and get a popsicle or, you know, a drink with a whole cup of ice. Because it was so hot. Um, but yeah, Bernie, Bernie Falls was pretty cool. You know, we also, not necessarily state parks, but we did discover a lot of small, much smaller national monuments mm -hmm. or national rec sites. Because there's a lot of those that exist that most people have never heard of before. That once I started looking at the trail a little bit closer, talking to people along the way, really talking to people along the way of what they had done the day before or after or whatever, 
was really, really helpful because, you know, a lot of people who are on the road, they're doing the same thing. And they're like, hey, have you been to such and such a place? And the day after the Grand Canyon, we knocked off two smaller national monuments. And then the next morning, a third that were all within 45 minutes of each other. And one was above ground uh, Pueblo dwellings that was called Lupatki National Monument. The next one, 20 minutes from there, totally different ecosystem was a cinder cone volcano called Sunset Crater. That was a super cool overlook, a totally different set of like trees and landscape from the arid desert that the Pueblo was in. And the, the, the fact that like the volcano and the, the people and their, their subsistence were connected in various ways because they all like the volcano erupted at the time that these people were living there. So like tying that together was super cool. And then 30 minutes from there is another place where there was Pueblo and cliff dwellings that are not nearly as spectacular as some of them that we saw later on, but it kind of set the stage for what we are going to see. And that was called Walnut Canyon. And I mean, those are three national monuments I had never heard of before, never knew existed. And I was like, well, heck, let's check these off our list. And, you know, I, you know, the national park system has, has a passport. I've got it right here. Yeah. 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 So I've had mine since high school. And we bought my kids each their own. And so we were really, we both collected stickers for our water bottles and, and the vehicle and, mm-hmm. and the stamps for the passport at every single place we went. So we were kind of almost getting like this, this addiction of like, well, we got to get another one. <laughs> and I mean, we covered, when I counted it all, we covered 21 either national parks or monuments in a span of 28 days. So we did nearly one a day for the entire trip. That's fantastic. And, you know, you talk about the American dream. That is it, right? And especially yep. we're out west where there are a lot of them. Yep. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking about walking down a trail with soft serve, that's the kind of thing I was citing. You, everybody will remember forever, right? Yep. Uh, yep. May, you know, maybe the day will come, you know, when the kids are – 40 or 50, where was that that we had the soft serve? And, uh, you know, right. they'll call you to find out where it was and you'll be the one to remember. So. Right. <laughs> that, uh, that, and also they were, they were very quick to point out. I mean, granted, I'm stuck in the car with two kids for the whole time and I'm a very outgoing chatty person. So they kept being half enthused, half entertained and half mortified that I would strike up conversations with just about everyone. Mm. And sometimes, ways that I was thinking I was really funny. Um, you know, like we went, went up to this trail, uh, like an end point on a trail and there were, it was an awesome trail. One of the best hikes, the bump ass trail hike at Lassen national park with there's like, uh, fumaroles and hydrothermic activity and stuff. And there was a bunch of people sitting and they were having their snack or their sandwich or whatever. And I walk up to them or we all walk up and I was like, Oh great. Who brought me a sandwich? And the kids are just like rolling their eyes. They're like, Oh mom, you're so weird. Why are you talking to them? They don't have a sandwich for you. I'm like, I know them. it's a joke, right? But like, it's just lightening the mood and having fun. It's standard operating procedure for anybody with kids that age. They're going to be mortified at your very existence. You're lucky that they only chose those moments, Um, (laughs) I I think. So, uh, you know, I remember at the time they were, yeah, just by the time we got done, we were no longer having those family conversations because after 55 days, you're pretty much out of stuff to talk about with your 12 and 15 year old. (laughs) So I would think, but but the fact that you got to do it is fantastic. Any stood out, had you been to the Grand Canyon and had you been to Bryce and all, so those were new for you too. Yep. I had been, um, I had been to Crater Lake. I had been to Point Reyes. I had been to Mesa Verde and Bandelier. Um, But a lot of the rest of it, I hadn't. I'd been to other places in, in those regions too, that we didn't go to. We, I mean, we skipped a lot too. We didn't do Yosemite. We went, we blazed right past it, but it's the pandemic summer. It was so busy that we would need a reservation to get in. Half the campsites were closed. So I couldn't get a campsite reservation anywhere close to the park or even a crappy motel. Like I couldn't find any place. And I'm like, you know what? That's going to be a different trip. 
Just not right. going to do well, And it's close enough to do again that isn't yep. out, out there. The Grand Canyon is not a place you want to blow by because that's a that was a little bit of an investment to get there. How did you feel about the Grand Canyon and how crowded was that? Uh, it was very, very crowded. Um, we, we were able to camp right in the park there. We got a campsite. That was one of the places that I got a campsite, which was good. And what was interesting is, um, Grand Canyon was the most conservative of all the parks from a COVID standpoint. We were there on, I want to say July 6th and they had just reopened parts of their buildings and their ranger program two days earlier. So everyone else had reopened much sooner. They had just reopened. Um, it, a, it was really busy. B, it was really hot. And we, I mean, our ranger talk we went to the night before that was literally talking about how to not be an idiot on the trail. Don't go down in the canyon unprepared, all of those things. They talked about the, the, the rangers called the classic unprepared guy, Victor Vomit, because you get heat exhaustion and you basically get yourself into trouble. And I guess I also didn't really realize, I thought that, I thought that like the Columbia River Gorge, wrongly, I thought that you could probably just like blaze down, blaze up and do it in a day, weather permitting. And they're like, what I learned is that's absolutely wrong. Most people take two or three days and do it as a backpacking trip and take one day to go down and two days to come up um, and camp backpack along the way. And I, so that was a, a interesting fact to me. And actually one of those things that I said to my son, I'm like, all right, well, maybe down the road, you and I come back here for a long weekend or a spring break and we go backpacking and do the Canyon. The other, and the other thing that I learned that I didn't realize, cause I've had this like, bucket list idea that I wanted to raft the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. I love rafting. And last summer we did a couple of day trip on the Deschutes and mm -hmm. we did this one river trip that was on flat water with a motorized raft that was from the Glen Canyon Dam to the 15 miles down around Horseshoe Bend and to the zero mile marker of the Grand Canyon. What I didn't realize, I didn't even think that rapids went above class six. They're like, oh, no, no, no down there in the Colorado, it gets up to class 10. I'm like, class 10? I didn't know that either. I was just on class four and I thought that was pretty heavy. Pretty big, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it gets to class 10. These boats have to be 40 feet. These rafts have to be like 40 feet or longer. And mm -hmm. the water temperature fluctuates between 47 and 48 and a half degrees. Wow. So, and there's <laughs> like, once you put in at mile mark zero, there is nowhere for you to get out until day four. So, because wow. the canyon is so steep. So that kind of reframed my bucket list thinking that maybe I actually don't want to raft the Colorado. I'm, I'm going to say there's always a snake river that's closer and it's beautiful and easy and you can drive to it. We just did it. I'm not going to go into all of that, but it's fantastic. But I want to throw in a little anecdote when you talk about what your expectations were at the Grand Canyon, because when I was in college, I was working there, 1980. Oh, okay. So I worked for the Fred Harvey Company. And my job was at the, I don't think they have the, the Chevron station there anymore, but I pumped gas at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> we went to the University of Arizona. And so this was a nice thing to do in the summer. Yeah. So I have many stories, some which I'm sure I don't even remember, but two that I do is we had one person pull in and ask where the faces in the rocks were. <laughs> uh, they actually thought they were at Mount Rushmore. And the second one is where is the escalator? That one was fun. So someone thought you could actually take an escalator down and which is what you were you were hoping for, I think, or what you would hope for. Anyone well, I, would. I mean, I was hoping I was hoping that we could do like a dip into the canyon and, right. and maybe hit a plateau and something like that. But you know, after walking the rim trail in 105 degrees, I was like, we're not going into the canyon. Yeah, like, no, it's it's tough. And it's when it's crowded, it's not that fun to be passing that many people, too. That's right. I think. So, uh, but the nice thing about working there is we learned uh, about all the, and this was back, when, I don't think when it was as crowded. There were fewer people in the world. Um, <laughs> it was that long ago, but uh, we learned all the overlooks and all the little 
places that we could hang and, and nobody would come around during the day on our days off. So yeah. we, would, we would drink wine and watch the planes go overhead. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, right. But that was 40 years ago. Hate to say right. it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it, it was definitely something that I think I, given that it's not that far of like a plane trip for us from here in Portland, like I could see flying back to that area and, and spending, renting a car and spending more time like over Thanksgiving break or something like maybe before the snow comes or I don't know, like when it's cooler where you can hike with layers instead of like, you right. know, in the summer you can only go down to shorts and a tank top before you're as undressed as you should be when you're doing a hike. Right. And and just the extra water that you have to carry and all of that stuff. It's just, it's not, it's a, it's a hardcore thing. Um, and that, and also like Zion was interesting. We learned that, and I'd read an article right before we went, that Zion was so busy that, that you had to be there in the parking lot before 6am um, in order to actually get a spot because the park is so small that they don't let private vehicles through the park anymore. You have to park at the main parking area and then they take you to shuttles to the trailheads. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. So a couple things happened there. First, they had had flash floods two days before we got there which I think made a lot of people cancel their reservation. So that re their cancellation was our gift because we were able to get a campsite in Zion, literally walking distance to the parking lot um, the night that we were there, which allowed us to unfortunately, fortunately wake up at 545 so we could be in the parking lot by 615, including mm -hmm. packing up our camp and getting over there. Um, but then we got on the shuttle and Chris, it was so busy that like, Angel's Rest, the main hike to, to do there, um, they had a line at the trailhead of a queue of people just to get onto the trail. Yeah. And the line was like over a block long. And so there's stuff like that that I'm like, everyone says that that's a really great trail. We're not doing it because yeah. we're not. Why? Why? A, why? No one should stand in line to go see nature <laughs> and, and be, if it's that cool, we'll come back when we can do it with less, less people. Yeah, no, that, that would be my, I could just see myself now because I just hate crowds and people. It's one of the things about living in Manzanita. So I have gotten used to that. So, so, um, yeah, well, so uh, were there any things that you were able to see that were unspoiled by masses of people? Um, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated, so Delicate Arch in Arches, the most famous arch, um, it's, it's a moderate, to moderate hike. Um, you, you know, like, I live on the flanks of Mount Tabor here in Portland, and to get up to the top, you have to climb about 20, 20 to 25 flights of stairs on your, you know, walk up to the top to get up to the top of delicate arch. It was about 60 flights that you're climbing. That was up slick rock and it was cool, but it was also one of these, like we, we got there really early. We started our hike by 8 AM. It was already 88 degrees and there's no shade. You're just in wide open space. So, but so it was a cool hike. We got up to the top. We, we saw the arch, but what I did appreciate was that the public wasn't that much of an asshole that there were people crowding around it. People were actually fairly um, polite that they were, there was a queue of people standing in line waiting for their turn to take a shot unadulterated by other people so that you can have a photograph of just you and your family or just you with the arch without lots of people around, which, you know, when you're going to see something like that, I was kind of like, I, I'm going to be a little disappointed wind out of my sails if we walk up to Delicate Arch and it's just going to be throngs of people that you can't actually like take, take a step back and experience it. Or so, take pictures without a lot of people. That's the thing for me. I don't want other people in my pictures. Right, exactly. Or so I was, really, I, that I was really impressed that organically the public created a line and people were waiting the only unfortunate piece of the whole thing was that part of the line in front of us by about 20 people were these two 
girls who were just so interested in getting the most Instagram worthy photo that they took like 200 shots and they kept posing in all these sexy ways. And it's like, oh my God, get off the rocks of the rest of us. Like no level of self-awareness that they were, you know, being really selfish. Um, but you know what? That's, that's America too. <laughs> that's America today. There's no doubt about that. I, I watch, I pass the overlook at Nia Connie Mountain all the time with people. You know, they can stand there and do all they want. But, you know, there, was, there have been a couple of people who have fallen off taking pictures before being stupid. So yeah. uh, you see that all the time. So anything else you want to add? Because what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about your business, uh, how you navigate that uh, with a family and, um, and, you know, what's going on in Portland. If you have anything else to talk about on the trip, great. Otherwise, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I just feel like, I, I just feel so lucky that I, that I have a job and a life that allowed me to take that time to do it. And, you know, you've done it with your kids. And I feel like it's a very common thing from a European lifestyle. And it's not a very common thing for an American lifestyle. And frankly, I feel like it, it should be one of those things that's mandatory. Like people should have to get out of their own comfort zone and go out and see, see your own country, your own backyard and know that there's more than just your, your little hometown. There's so many people who never leave where they live in the comfort of where they live. And there's so much to see and do. And I, I think people would have a better appreciation of not only the wilderness around us, but just also humanity of, our country if they got out a little bit more. And the vastness of it. And also what, you know, to take the opportunity to stop and smell the roses with your kids, you, you don't, you're not going to have it forever. And a lot of people don't do that. So um, yeah. And I, I'm going to guess that there might be one of the, one of the silver linings to the pandemic is that maybe there'll be people who are more appreciative of the opportunity to do things together because they just spent a year and a half, doing everything. And so being, uh, you know, at Zion National Park with your kids is like better than being doing homework around a, a you know, a desk, a, a computer. So there's that. So yep. let's take, let's just take a minute to break here and um, then we'll come back and we'll talk about the wine business. Great. Pausing just a moment here, Chris, to talk about one of our favorite places to eat here in Portland, Ringside Steakhouse. And speaking of one of our favorite places to eat, we converged on that concept uh, this weekend. Uh, you and I and our significant others, your wife, my girlfriend, had a beautiful dinner at Ringside and I cannot express uh, strongly enough how nice it was to sit at a beautiful restaurant, order and get wonderful service and eat delicious food and have a great time. I believe, if my math is correct, we were there for about four hours. Yeah, no, it, it was it, it was definitely four hours because I was getting text messages from our thirteen-year-old wondering when we were going to get home, and mm -hmm. my my two daughters were actually waiting at the front door when Randy and I walked in. <laughs> like, well, where have you been? <laughs> turnabout is fair play, I suppose. However, yep. uh, speaking of turnabout. They're back to regular service. Their bar is now reopened and they take reservations and also walk-ins uh, at the bar. And be because they opened up this great outdoor patio, Chris, uh, that is going to continue through the fall. Take advantage of the summer weather and eat outside. It's an outdoor patio. It's got hardwood floors, has full white tablecloth service. It'll have the same service team, the same menus as indoors, but you're outside and uh, definitely something you want to take advantage of at ringside they're still offering their prime rib wednesday special available both in-house and to go so you can call in orders for pickup as well as on doordash and caviar or go to ringsidesteakhouse.com or open table to enjoy dinner wednesday through sunday at ringside Well, we're here with Anne, and would you, could you do me a favor? I always, because I never assume I can get pronunciations right, and I do it yep. all, wrong all the time. Name and business. Right. Anne Hubach of Helioterra Wines and Alter Ego Cider. 
Beautiful. All right, so I'm gonna come back and do that again because we don't need to have that, but. Um, all right, so we're back with Ann Hubach. 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 Yeah. Of Helioterra Wines. And what was the cider again? Alter Ego Cider. Alter Ego Cider. Sorry, I'm not a big cider fan. That's all right. But, but you could make me one. And you know, years ago, I don't, I don't know how many years ago, I'm going to guess about eight, you came to St. Jack. Yeah. Correct. And yep. you provided the wine for the Portland Food Adventures dinner that we did there. I can't wait to get back to doing a couple of events a year or at least a few. You know, we yep. used to do one a month. And that was very nice. How far into your your wine experience were you then? I think you were fairly new at that point. In I time. was fairly new. Yeah. So, well, so this will be my 20th vintage um, making wine in Oregon. Uh, and it is, so I started Helioterra in 2009. Actually, ironically enough, I, I started the business and I had my second child that year. So it was a big year of new things. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and that wasn't, a, if I recall, that wasn't a wonderful year financially for a mm -hmm. lot of people. That was a tough year. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, uh, I was at a point where I had spent eight years working at other wineries around and for other, for other winemakers in Oregon. And I got to a point where I felt like my career was stalling out. Like there was nowhere next to move to, you know, you kind of work your way up. You start at the bottom, you know, clean in the cellar floor and then you work into, you know, a little bit more responsibility and you go to assistant winemaker and winemaker and consulting winemaker. And I got to a point where I was winemaker and consulting winemaker uh, for some other folks. And I kind of, and, and this was also 13 years ago, um, where believe it or not, 13 years ago, we had only half the wineries that we do now. Um, and so there wasn't really anyone available that was hiring in a role that I wanted to have. And I knew that I had made 90 point wines I knew, and above, and I knew that I knew what I was doing in the cellar. And I just didn't know necessarily how to pull the trigger on my own brand, but I thought, what the hell, I'm going to take a shot and do it. And um, so in that same year that I had my second child, I pulled half the equity out of the mortgage of my house and I bought a couple of tons of grapes, six tons of grapes and some barrels and some fermenters. And rented a little corner of space in my friend John Groshow's winery and started making wine and took a gamble on myself rather than looking for that next job. Um, you know, and at the time it felt like the right thing to do. It was a bit of a risk, but at the same time, like I was, I, I knew that I could figure it out and it's kind of been as a lot of people in the Oregon wine industry, almost all of us come to this as a second career. Cause you know, Alcohol, producing alcohol for a living is not something inherently part of the culture of the United States because of our drinking age being 21, you graduate from high school at 18, your guidance counselor doesn't sit you down and say, hey, look, you know, you can make alcohol for a living. Like, it's not something that legally you can even discuss. So most people go off and do something else and then come back to this. And I did that too. Actually, I was, I often, I was in politics for a few years. Um, on kind of the community organizer level, um, which I often joke turns you to drinking. So, you know, you just got to make it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I then went back to school for winemaking. And then, you know, I actually almost went to culinary school after my undergraduate. Um, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in, in Wisconsin. I went to school at Madison. Um, I studied geology and environmental studies. So like that tie to being stewards of the land and knowing about soils and, and that piece of my, my educational background ties me to wine. Um, my passion for being in the outdoors also speaks to wanting to be out in vineyards. So that was also one of those things that when I moved out to Oregon in 99, I thought about continuing this, this pursuant in, in culinary but then I found, oh my God, I'm in like one of the most up and coming wine regions in the world. Why would I want to be in a kitchen when I could be out in a vineyard instead? So I kind of went down that path instead. Um, and yeah, like I said, worked for a number of different people. And then um, in 09, started my own thing. And, you know, um, 
a lot of small producers just come to this out of passion and then build their their business and their brand by the seat of their pants. You know, you just throw yourself in there and, and do it. And, um, you know, it's a juggle. Being an entrepreneur in, in and of itself is a juggle. But then you throw in like in this business, you have to, you know, be good at producing. You have to be good at sales and increasingly now also marketing and online marketing and having a, a social media presence. I mean, when I started my brand in 2009, social media hardly even existed. Um, and now it's like, you can't really market your business without some sort of social media access and promotion. Is, um, that, is, that, is that a burden or an opportunity? Social media? Yes. <laughs> it's, both. <laughs> it's both. I mean, it's, it's free, air quotes, free, um, but it's not because, you know, really to do it right and to do it well takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes, you know, having a lot of assets. So, you know, I've had a number, many, many uh, numbers of different photo shoots that, to get an arsenal of photographs that we can use through social media and promotion and marketing and you know, those, those are things that you, that you can't just do overnight. You're going to have to amass it over time and then you have to utilize them well. And, you know, like for the last year and a half, like I said, I didn't have any staff. So it came down to me having to remember that I got to post something and let's face it, you know, when we're all stuck at home, finding something that's like newsy or relevant, short of just buy more wine. Cause I know you're drinking. Right. It, it, it's, it was a little tough but also uh, you're competing with this the food world at least pre-pandemic that is that is uh taking up a lot of bandwidth in terms of the attention of people who like food and wine yeah in, in portland so you've got but also you complement what they do too so yeah and, that. and having those partnerships and you know i it's you have to keep staying relevant right and there's a lot that um there's a lot of relationships that I have, you know, St. Jack you mentioned is, is a great case in point. Like I still do business with them and I still have my wines at their restaurants, even the new one that they just opened in Lake Oswego. And um, that's, that's great. But there's also so many places that are opening or sadly closing that, you know, you have to continually invest within that network because Portland and, and the Oregon food scene in general is, so people oriented, it's all small business. There's very few chains. And frankly, I don't really do business with chains anyway. And so, um, unless it's grocery. And so you have to know all the people. And frankly, I've always said this, you know, like you always have to be nice to every single person along the way, because that maitre d' or that front of house or that server could end up being the next restaurateur or the next thing. And then you have a new connection and new relationship that goes on to serve everyone's purposes down the road. Um, I mean, yeah, I've, I've learned that doing what I'm doing. Absolutely. And it, yeah. it's kind of tough when you've got a little bit of a Larry David uh, reputation too, to do that. I don't know you do, but I do it's like, I'll, <laughs> I can say things that maybe, maybe run people, the, uh, rub people the wrong way. Sure. I mean, and everyone has a personality, right? And you, you are who you are. And so you find right. your people, right? You find the ones who you match with and you, you can run with that. Um, but I mean, like literally case in point, this past weekend, I had a wine club member show up while I was here. And I was like, hey, are you coming to pick up your wine? And she's like, yeah. And I'm now the new manager of this bar restaurant down the road and we're reopening tonight and I need cider and wine. What do you have? <laughs> and like, wow. it became one-stop shop. I loaded her up with a, a case of wine, a keg of cider and her wine club wine, but she's been in the industry for 10 years. And I met her, you know, a decade ago when she worked at like five restaurants ago within her career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of that people moving around and especially now, especially people now. popping up in new ventures. Um, left and right. Do you have any, I don't mean to put you on the spot in terms of, um, you know, favors, favorites, but are there any chefs along the way that have been particularly wonderful to you, wonderful with your wines, and that, that if you were taking on a, an adventure somewhere, let's say, that you'd want to be your chef 
along oh, the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I've, I would say first, first off, um, I adore the gals over at Noble Rot. Um, that team, that restaurant, that's been, that's been an ongoing, um, really fun relationship. And actually, uh, ironically enough, I met Courtney stores when she and I were in prenatal yoga together. Cause I, <laughs> we were both pregnant at the same time with her younger or her, yeah, her younger and my older child. And I had an Andrew Rich Vintner t-shirt on and she said, Hey, are you in the wine industry? And so we got talking. And so those, those gals have been a huge support and I really love their food and how they approach local and with the rooftop and whatnot. Um, Aaron Barnett over at St. Jack and, and, and Lemuel, everything that he's done, like he's been a great supporter of mine. I just love what he's doing. I feel like everything, every time I go there, I have a great experience. I have a great meal. You know, there's, there's kind of a, an absence of fine dining per se in Portland. We don't really have a lot of white linen places, but I feel like, you know, the, the St. Jack, the Paley's movie departure, there's, a tier that's the upper tier of, of restaurants around town and, and he hits it and it's always a great experience there. Um, I've done some really fun dinners with Erdanetta. Oh, yes. I know those folks fairly well. Yeah, right. I knew you did. Um, <laughs> they, I mean, they don't actually have a, much local wine on their list, but through mm -hmm. like classic wine auction and whatnot, I've been partnered with them and they're just such lovely humans. And my God, their food, both for the dinners that we've done and during pandemic, the takeout that I got from them was some of the best takeout out of pandemic, which is saying a lot because there's, there's everyone is trying to do things. And sometimes tra food traveling in boxes doesn't go so well when you get home. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And theirs was top notch all the way. So yeah, they, but here's my feeling with them. And I'm sure with a lot of the folks you've mentioned, too. But they're not going to put it in a box unless they know it's going to be as good as it could possibly be. They're not going to underrepresent their food, which I think a lot of people uh, were cognizant of. But I'm so glad to be able to go back in. I've been to Erdanetta twice since they reopened. And um, it's just a delightful experience. But it's interesting that you mentioned St. Jack and Paley's Place because those are the three, <laughs> the Erdanetta, those are the three that when people ask me, where should I go for something that's a little highbrow plus ringside, where should I, where should I go? Those are the places that I think are, and I'm sure there are a couple that I'm forgetting, but given that, you know, some of Vitaly's restaurants, the hotel restaurants close and David Machado's and there's, there's a few standing and there'll be some new ones too, but I'm a little concerned that we're going to go a little strong on the fast casual side of the equation and less on the fine dining coming out of this. And that's, that's a shame. I just think it, hopefully we'll all get to a place where we're used to slightly higher prices that fine dining w should and will command. Yeah. Um, and, and I personally am willing to go with that. I'm just not willing to do that in a box. I don't care how high the fine dining is. I don't get the same experience. And it's the yep. same thing with wine. It's sitting in a, in a beautiful restaurant, sipping your wine is so much different than, you know, pouring it with a, a food in a box. So. Yeah. 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 Oh, on that note though, have you had, um, have you eaten at Melka? No. Okay. I don't even really know how to describe their food. Cause it's like, it's a lot of different ethnic influences, but it's like so many ingredients that are so fresh, but also they opened, they had a cart, they opened their brick and mortar of January of 2020. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then of course had to switch to, to, to go. And they've, I mean, they're one of these unusual circumstances that they've been not only surviving but thriving throughout the pandemic and have come up with a lot of different meals that certainly while plated look much better but the food travels well it tastes really great and they have our cider and a small amount of wine um on their to-go menu and that's that's been a, a special treat too it, it helps that it's literally on my drive home um that i can pick it up on my way home but that's where are, where are they specifically 
So they're on division approximately 48th-ish, 50th, literally right across from where uh, um, Tasty... I was going to... Yeah. Was. I don't know who's there now. Yeah. Where the Woodsman was, it's like right. nothing is there right now. So that, that Stumptown and... and um, what did I just say? The Tasty and the... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's whatever's right. It's like, a, it's in a house right across the street from there. I was going to ask you, it sounds like you're talking about a cart because that's where uh, Kim Jong Grillin was. It's so like, right next, it's right okay. next to there. Cool. Malka, thank you for the recommendation. I'll have to take, I'll have to do that. So before we end, let's talk about what's exciting at Helioterra. And yeah. alter ego, what's what's going on there? Let's do the PR side of this for you. Yeah, totally. So <laughs> I am I'm actually quite excited because so I have so I'm sitting in my building. Um, I have an urban winery at Southeast Portland. We're on Seventh between Division and Hawthorne, and um, I make my wines here. We make some of our specialty ciders here, and I have enough extra space that I rent to a few other producers. And this year kind of through happenstance, but through, you know, great joy, we are going to have uh, a crew of small producers that are all women. And in fact, two Latina. And I'm not quite certain, but I think we might be the first all female wine production facility in the country. And I need to look into that a little bit more, but also then I'm going to be changing our, our tasting room setup to really highlight that and focus on all women produced beverages. So we'll have people that will have wines and our cider um, of what we're making in house here, but then I'll probably also be bringing in some other wines, maybe even beer uh, that are all women made. Cause you know, we're very lucky that we live in a place that's very open to not only entrepreneurship, but women in those roles. And um, there's a lot of really creative women at the, in leadership roles within the Oregon scene of food and Bev. And so I'm really excited. It's been something I'll, I'll be honest, Chris, I'm, I'm very reluctant to play the female card. I kind of hate it in fact, cause I'm, I'm like, I'm a great winemaker. It doesn't matter what my gender is, but yet at the same time, what I've learned in, in very acute ways is during the pandemic, a lot of people are searching for more proactive ways to spend their dollar mm -hmm. and they are looking for BIPOC and they are looking for women and minority and whatnot. And so if I already have that, inherently within what we're doing with a great group of people, why not promote it in such a way that gives people what they're looking for and makes it easier to find us? Yeah, so. I think, it, yeah, and it's time and it's a it's a good opportunity to stand out as well, right? So that's, as you said, you got to remain relevant and that's one way of doing it. And I would bet before you started your business or even before you got into, you know, in the <laughs> 2000s, it was largely, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know, but largely a male-oriented business. Well, it still right? is. It still yeah. is. Right, it's but it was, I would imagine at that point, you couldn't find many women who were in the roles you're in. Right. Uh, back, you know, 15 years ago. Yep, yep. And and it's increasingly more and more. And, you know, there's, there's one woman who actually is very new in her production. Her brand hasn't even been released yet. That's really more of a mentorship that I'm, I'm sort of teaching her along the way. She went through the WSET program and graduated with that. And then she's like, okay, I know the book side of wine. Now I want to know the winemaking side of it. So like I've been teaching her that process while she's making two barrels at a time, four barrels at a time. So she's going, she's starting small, but you know, she's really exploring that passion for her herself. And so I, I'm, I by and large make the, the most in this building, but it's going to be fun to have other people. And frankly, last year, because there were a couple other folks in the building and it was the middle of the pandemic, we actually ended up being each other's team and helping each other out from a staffing standpoint, because we were in a bubble, we were in our COVID bubble together. And it's like, forget it. You know, no one else is coming in. We're not being an urban winery. It, it's, it was a bummer because normally it's quite a, a, I won't say party atmosphere because that kind of makes you think that you're drinking while you're working, which I don't really, I don't, it's a pretty dangerous job making wine. 
and you can say the parting pill afterwards, but, um, but it's the same thing that like, I really enjoyed having people come and help, you know, you can have restaurateurs come and, and servers and your friends being in the urban scene. Like you don't have to have them drag their bum down to the Valley just to help sort grapes here. It's like, Hey, when you, if you want to get off work a little early, come on by and help sort grapes with us and be part of the action. And so that's something that I'm excited to have that energy back. And actually my hospitality director, we're going to, she's going to help host some harvest happy hours. So the loft that I'm sitting in right now, right above the winery, we are actually going to um, create a series of happy hours where people can come and drink wine and watch the, the grapes being processed or the harvest in motion so that people can kind of get more of a feel, a little bit more of an education and maybe even taste some of the fermenting wines along the way. Sounds like somebody's there. Someone's that, at the door, yeah. Is actually. that our cue? Let's, that's our cue. I think we ought to have that every episode. Knock, 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 knock. Um, that might have been court on the other side. So, Anne, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to take the time and learn quite a bit from you and go on your journey with you. A couple of well, journeys. Thanks. Appreciate the time. And thanks for, for inviting me to be on here, Chris. It's All really right. Cool. We'll look forward to seeing you. And I want to get down to a division as well. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right